so I am testing out the sound levels right now to make sure things are picking up well. Could you say something? Uh, four score and seven years ago, <laughs> A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Oh, uh, yeah. That, uh, sound okay? Yeah. The levels okay. are coming in evenly, which is good. Um, That's because I talk in a monotone. <laughs> I, I, know, I know what that's like. Um, so you want to talk new universe? Uh, yeah. So I've been doing this podcast for about a year and a half now, covering the different Marvel and DC alternate universes. But for some of the bigger uh, universes there are to cover, I try and do something big. Like for the uh, Age of Apocalypse stuff, I did a uh, Ken Burns-style documentary on the universe itself. <laughs> and... For the new universe, a lot of it is not actually available anywhere. Uh, like, the only things that I've found have been uh, the second volume of Starbrand came out digitally this week. So I picked those up this week and I've yet to have time to read through them. Did but, you read through the new universe books when they first came out? No, I... I've been into comics for about a decade now, hmm. so they, like, that was before that was a long I... time ago. Yeah. Yeah. All right, well, I, like I said, uh, I was there briefly at the beginning of the New Universe, and then uh, I was kind of force-fed uh, one of the books at the tail end, and uh, I'll tell you, uh, whatever I know, I might be able to provide some insights that others can't. But um, most of the books that were, uh, you know, were edited by um, uh, other people over time. But uh, uh, I might have some good insights for you. Yeah, I've, uh, I was looking at uh, the comic book database website and it said that you were the colorist and editor for Kickers, Inc. And then you were also the cover artist for Night Mask. I'm not entirely sure how correct well, I don't, I don't recall doing any coloring, uh, but I was uh, editor on the latter issues of Kicker, Inc., and um, I did at least one cover for Night Mask. I think it was uh, the second issue. Uh, Archie Goodwin, who created uh, the character, had asked me to uh, draw a cover, and, uh, uh, you know, having Archie ask you to do something for him is... Uh, I don't know if you know much about Archie Goodwin, but it was like, you know, I don't know anybody could turn that down because uh, he was pretty much universally uh, liked and revered in the comics business. And, uh, you know, to have him ask you to do something for him was uh, an incredible form of flattery. Okay. Uh, well, just for the record, could you uh, introduce yourself? Okay. Uh, my name is Carl Potts. Uh, I was on Marvel's editorial staff for... 13 years from 1983 to 96. I started out as a line editor there. Uh, before I was on staff, I was a uh, freelance uh, writer and artist that uh, worked in comics and in uh, advertising and commercial art. Um, for most of my time at Marvel, though, I was one of uh, three executive editors and oversaw about a third of Marvel's output. And um, uh, one of the things I did uh, at Marvel was I, uh, you have to excuse the horns, no, I live near a fire station. Oh, I, uh, I know the feeling. I live adjacent to a highway, so. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I liked to uh, find and mentor a lot of top talent. Uh, I also um, developed the Punisher from like a third string guest star character into a franchise and um, oversaw the epic line of creator-owned titles after Archie Goodwin left the company. Um, uh, but I have a pretty eclectic taste, uh, even within uh, the Marvel imprint. Uh, at one time I was editing uh, Rocket Raccoon, Power Pack, and The Punisher simultaneously. Um, <laughs> so... Uh, and then when I was uh, executive editor, one of the things I did was oversee the license books. So I was simultaneously uh, dealing with uh, the Barbie license and the Hellraiser license. Uh, so, yeah, I like diversity. 
<laughs> yeah, it, it's interesting talking to people who've been through a lot of uh, experiences with Marvel and DC and like having like fingers in all sorts of series. Well, I was fortunate enough to be at Marvel during the time when uh, it experienced its most uh, successful publishing period and uh, sustained publishing period for many years that, you know, the sales just kept growing and growing. Uh, and uh, I wish I could take more credit for that, but uh, uh, it was uh, serendipitous more than anything. Uh, but for a good chunk of that time, it was... Uh, about the best place you could think of to work. Uh, uh, a lot of us were there, uh, grew up reading and liking comics so much that we decided to try and make it our profession, and uh, we were fortunate enough to actually do so. And um, so we loved what we were doing, and uh, most of us that worked there got along real well and socialized as well as worked together. And, uh, you know, outside of a few you know, tense periods of time, including uh, uh, the tail end of the new universe. Uh, uh, it was uh, it was a great place to work. Awesome. So, how did you start working on the new universe line? Well, initially, uh, in an editorial meeting, uh, Jim Shooter told all of the uh, editors uh, that. Uh, they wanted to do a special publishing event to celebrate Marvel's uh, anniversary. I forget which one that was. Was that... Uh, 25. 25th, okay. Um, so um, he said he wanted to launch a whole line of new titles that had no association at all with the Marvel Universe. And I thought that was pretty bizarre. You want to celebrate Marvel's 25th anniversary by launching a bunch of titles that ignore the Marvel Universe. That, that made no sense. Mm -hmm. Um so, uh, but they were going to do that. So uh, uh, he said that they initially the idea was to have new concepts, new intellectual properties uh, that could cover any genre, uh, time period, or whatever, as long as they were good and as long as they weren't associated with the Marvel Universe. Uh, initially, there was no uh, mandate to have any of these new titles interrelate with each other or be part of some other new universe. Um, and so the first book that was actually approved for the Marvel Universe, uh, for, excuse me, for the new universe, was a, a book I edited called Strike Force Moratory. And um, uh, I'd been working with Peter Gillis at that point on, uh, I was editing Doctor Strange and uh, he was writing that for me. And he gave me a proposal for Strike Force Moratory. I told him about this whole new universe thing. Uh, and um, since his book had no real connection with the Marvel Universe, it seemed to be uh, a good candidate. Uh, I teamed him up with uh, artist Brent Anderson. And they fleshed it out. Uh, I got, I pitched uh, the book to Shooter. He liked the idea and approved it. And so we went ahead and started working on Strike Force Moratory. And then uh, sometime later, I started hearing uh, that there were meetings with uh, Shooter and the various people that were working on New Universe titles. And I wasn't getting invited to these meetings. Uh, so that puzzled me. So I, I marched into Shooter's office and asked him what was going on. And that's when he informed me that they changed the concept of the new universe to being its own self-contained uh, interrelating universe, but still separate from the Marvel universe. And that Strike Force Moratory didn't fit that model. Uh, so it was decided to make Strike Force Moratory uh, a Marvel imprint title, even though it had no real connection to the established Marvel universe. And at that point, uh, myself and uh, the creators on the book had started hearing stories of um, how heavy-handed Shooter was being in the development of uh, the other New Universe titles. And we decided it was a big blessing in disguise to have been booted from the New Universe uh, back to the Marvel Universe. So we were pretty pleased with that. And. Uh, I had nothing else to do really with the new universe other than to, uh, you know, 
see the work it was as it was being uh, created by the other uh, creators and editors and to see the promotional work that was being done for it and so on and um, tell you the truth uh, a lot of it I was not particularly interested in or impressed by uh, there were some things that you know um, like I said Archie Goodwin is uh, what was about the most well-respected uh, comics writer and editor in the business and uh, he had created a, a couple of the concepts for the new universe so those of course interested me and I've always liked uh, John Romita Jr.'s work so um, uh, you know I was interested in checking out Starbrand um, but uh, most of the other titles uh, when I heard about them I, they didn't you know really grab me um, so uh, I had you know only a passing interest in what was really going on in the Marvel I mean in the New Yorkers and the um, the main reason I was interested in all was the, the fact that uh, many of the people I knew and liked that were creators or on the editorial staff that were uh, dealing with trying to put this whole new universe together, uh, a lot of them were under tremendous stress uh, and um, were getting into a lot of conflicts with Shooter about it. And uh, that was my biggest concern was for my uh, uh, creative and editorial comrades. Now, this had happened after uh, Secret Wars 2, correct? Uh, yeah, I believe so. Yeah. Um, I believe it was after both of the initial Secret Wars books, yeah. Um, you know, Secret Wars um, had uh, been a huge commercial success, uh, but it was pretty much like um, a dirty bomb as far as uh, the relationships within a lot of editorial um, and shooter. Uh, he had been highly um, dictatorial about uh, working on the, uh, the Secret Wars books and making large last-minute changes that threw the schedules off uh, and uh, dismissed a lot of the work that had been done by people who had worked really hard on it. Um, and it was an awkward situation because he had set up a editorial system at Marvel uh, that was meant to try and avoid conflict of interest. So most of the editors up there were also creators, either writers or artists or both. And there was a system in place where if you did freelance work for Marvel and you were a staff editor, you couldn't edit your own creative work. And nobody that answered to you like uh, if you were a group editor, uh, none of the other line editors that were in your group could edit you. Uh, there was nobody you had say over a higher fire capacity or that could edit you. It had to be another editor of at least the same level as you. And um, here was Shooter, who was the editor-in-chief, uh, writing this book and uh, constantly uh, overwriting uh, the line editor who was in charge of the book and uh, just created a lot of havoc and uh, problems within the, the culture of the company. And uh, I was glad not to be a part of that any more than I was. Uh, we had to do crossovers in our Marvel Universe books, each of the editors that worked on it to do with Secret Wars, and, and just that was uh, difficult because uh, the Secret Wars books were always running so late and uh, I was trying to get my books out on time and there were always last minute changes to the crossover parts of the, the titles in the, the Marvel line that uh, had to have Secret Wars crossovers in them. So it was just a very difficult, strenuous time. I'm sure it was strenuous on Shooter too. Um, he was trying to do what I think he felt was best, but in the process he was uh, creating a huge problem yeah, I've uh, read some history through uh, Marvel Comics, The Untold Story, and just there's a wealth of uh, creators who have been talking about like how Secret Wars 2, there was a lot of complete rewriting of issues and like last-minute changes that people weren't consulted on and just character changes, so that sort of, I guess, established shooter's personality in a way? Uh, 
I don't know. It's hard to tell. I, I you know, initially, I mean, Shooter's the one who asked me to join the Marvel staff, and I, I'd known him before I came on staff through, uh, mostly through industry social events, and I'd always gotten along just fine with him, and he was a very, you know, knowledgeable guy, uh, and um, I was kind of flattered when he asked me to join the Marvel editorial staff, and I got along with him pretty well uh, for the first batch of years, uh, but it seemed like as time went on and the stakes went higher on things like Secret Wars and so on, um, he became much more difficult to deal with and, uh, you know, started alienating more and more people. and. Uh, it just uh, it's too bad because uh, the guy's talented and uh, uh, had a lot of knowledge and uh, it just uh, was kind of tragic to, to, to watch things kind of uh, get so messed up. Uh, to me it was seemed totally unnecessary, uh, but I have no idea what was going on in his head. So the book that you did the uh, most of your work on for the new universe was Kickers Inc. Could you mind yeah. uh, summarizing uh, Kicker's Inc.? Um, Kicker's Inc. was um, originally created by Tom DeFalco and I believe Ron Friends. And uh, two great guys who I like a lot. Uh, it was booked out mostly with football players, and that was a concept that you know initially didn't really grab me. Um, but early on in the process of, of working on the book, um, both DeFalco and friends were alienated uh, by Shooter, and uh, I don't know if they were voluntarily or involuntarily uh, tossed off the book very soon after it launched. Um, and whoever had been editing it, um, I forget who at that point, uh, might have been Mike Higgins, possibly. Um, anyhow, the, the book, uh, for various reasons, had gotten to be I was told the latest book at, at Marvel, and um, I was known as a, an editor who was able to get the, the books out on time, and to try and get the book back on time, uh, Jim Shooter told Tom DeFalco, the person who had uh, created the book and was Marvel's lone executive editor at the time, uh, he told Tom DeFalco that he had to come down to my office and tell me I was taking over editing uh, Kicker's Inc., the book DeFalco created and had been alienated from. Uh, I was not amused because this wasn't a book I was interested in. It was phenomenally late, and I felt that my reward for uh, you know putting in my books out on time was to be handed the latest book in the house and one that I had no interest in. But uh, I could see, you know, this wasn't Tom's idea. I knew Tom well, and uh, I felt bad because I knew he had been put uh, between a rock and a hard place, and there's no joy in him coming down and having being forced to uh, assign me this title. So I made it real easy on him. I took the book uh, without complaint and uh, checked all of the stuff that was in the works. There was, uh, I don't know how many issues that were, simultaneously being worked on. Um, mostly they were being worked on people I would never have hired myself to have uh, worked on the books, uh, but they were in the process of, of working on them and there was no time to, because the book was so late, to reassign anything. So I worked with uh, the people that were already working on those stories as, as well as I could. and. To me, the biggest way I could make an impact, hopefully on the commercial uh, side of the book, was to try and uh, get uh, quality covers on the books. So um, I was fortunate enough to talk to people like uh, Mike Mignola, who I'd been working with a lot, and Kevin Dolan, and uh, um, Will Spatasio. Uh, got John Buscema to do a great cover of uh, one of the kicker's characters uh, fighting a lion. Um, Mark Texera did uh, one or two covers for me. Um, so to me, that was the biggest way I could make, hopefully make a, uh, an impact on the, uh, the comics racks. Uh, 
since the insides of the books were so well underway, um, and outside of editing them as much as I could in the, the time frame that I had, there wasn't much I could do about the uh, interior contents if the books were going to get back on time. So uh, that went along for a while, and I managed to get the books uh, on the uh, kind of ideal, what we used to call the Virginia schedule. Virginia Romita was the traffic manager at the time, and uh, she had this ideal schedule that we were supposed to try and uh, work on for all the Marvel monthly books. And I managed to get the Kickers Inc. back on time for the uh, with the Virginia schedule, just in time for them to decide to uh, cancel all or most of the, the new universe. <laughs> so uh, it uh, was all in vain. Yeah, the market was a lot different then because it was less of a direct market and more of you had newsstands and grocery stores also ordering issues, so and they were able to send back books that they didn't want. Yeah, and um, it was a it was a strange combination of things. When I first started editing in '83, uh, about two thirds of Marvel sales came from the newsstand and one third from the direct market. Within a few years, that had inverted. Uh, that was due both to the direct market growing and the newsstand market shrinking. And um, you know, the the newsstand market though was was vital to the growth and uh, sustainment of uh, comic sales because that's where new readers uh, were exposed to comics. During the course of our daily lives, those of us who grew up when uh, comics were on spinner racks in every drugstore, most supermarkets, you know, bus stations, uh, they were in uh, barber shops, you know, candy stores. Uh, so in the course of our daily lives, you know, a mom sends us to the grocery store to pick up uh, a half gallon of milk or we go in the variety store to buy a candy bar. We're, were exposed to comics on these spinner racks. And, you know, a lot of us were captivated by, by them and picked them up and started reading them. And uh, then we got hooked on them. And later on, we found out there were these com these stores that actually specialized in comics and had back issues and had weird comics that you never saw on the newsstand and, and uh, so on. And, uh, you know, so the people who really got hooked in the comics uh, it was because they were exposed to them in the course of their daily lives when the spinner racks pretty much went away. And that was due to primarily because um, the profit margin on comic book sales is very low for the retailer. And there's a lot of labor and time involved in racking and unracking comics that don't sell, putting in the new titles, ripping off the covers of the ones that didn't sell and sending them back to the distributor for credit or refunds, um, and the retailers finally figured out if they put something else in that same amount of square footage that had a higher profit margin, higher price and higher profit margin, uh, and was a lot less labor involved, it was better for them. So uh, the spinner racks gradually went away, and uh, newsstand distribution gradually went away, and that left the direct market and the comic book specialty stores, and at the height of the direct market, there were probably a bit more than 5,000 comic book specialty stores in all of North America, and um, that sounds like a lot, but it's not. Mm -hmm. uh, most of them are concentrated in urban areas, and uh, they're not exactly in the places that most people run across in the course of their daily lives, uh, so it was hard to recruit new generations of readers because they weren't even being exposed to the comics uh, in the course of their daily lives. They go run errands for their mother or go down to the variety store or whatever. They're not running across the spinner racks anymore, and the odds of them running across a comic book specialty store are very low compared to uh, the spinner racks. And quite frankly, a lot of the comic book specialty stores didn't look that friendly to people who weren't already fans. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, since they were concentrated mostly in uh, high population areas, you know, if you lived in a rural area, the odds of running into a comic book specialty store were 
almost non-existent. Uh, now there's, I guess, about, um, I forget what the last number I heard, maybe it was around 2,500 or so comic book specialty stores in North America. So, you know, there may be states that don't have a store in it, a comic book store. I don't know if Wyoming has a comic book store in it. <laughs> you know, even if it does, uh, if you live in Wyoming, that's a big state. Uh, it could be hundreds of miles away from you. You're never going to run across it on your own. The only way that store means anything to you is if you're already know and are a fan of comics so much so that you're willing to drive hours to, to get to the store. Mm-hmm. So um, that's one of the reasons these days why comics, even though uh, comic book properties are more popular and known by the general public more than ever due to films and television, video games and so on, it hasn't really uh, positively affected the sales of the comics themselves all that much. Uh, it's just uh, a lot of it's a matter of distribution and exposure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd agree with that. I mean, the only reason that I see ads for comics are because I read comics or like a good website, so that way my browser knows, oh, this guy reads comics, let's show him deals. But even then, it's really hard to tell... It's really hard to get someone who is not used to going to the store every day or even going online to pay three or four dollars for a comic when that's not a lot of story unless you're used to getting it in those chunks. And even then, like you said, you used to have kids going to the supermarket and with the extra change they could buy a comic. But unless you're getting like a $20 bill and you only need to pick up one item, you aren't going to have enough change to buy a book. Yeah, and uh, even with the higher prices the, for the retailer, the profit margins are still not all that great for the amount of, uh, you know, they got to pay all their overhead and uh, all that, and the labor involved in racking all these comics every week. It's, uh, it's not exactly a way to make a, a fortune. You know, it's something. It has to be a labor of love that you have to pour time into. I've worked exactly. I've worked at a comic shop, and it was like my the owners of the store were happy to pour money into it, but they didn't have the time to actually do what they needed to to understand the customers, to know what books were worth getting and stocking for the customer base, and so they realized it'd be easier to have a cash for gold store. The, uh, back at, you know, even at the height of the direct market, um, there, you know, a lot of those stores were labors loved by people who love comics, and they were running on, you know, these razor-thin margins, and they couldn't even afford the most basic cash register. For a while, Marvel did a great thing. They came up with the idea of, um, uh, you know, supplying the stores with cash registers, or at cost, I think it was. Uh, Marvel supplemented uh, so that they got very good prices on uh, cash registers. You know, a lot of these people work out of cigar boxes as cash registers. Um, and, um, you know, that's no way to really uh, run your business and keep track of things and, and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and then uh, back then, at least at the height of the uh, direct market, there were, I think, about a dozen direct distributors, and uh, a lot of them were regional, but there were several national distributors. And if you were a uh, comic book store owner, you had a variety of different distributors to shop in order to get the best deal for your comics. Uh, at one point, Marvel, uh, when it was owned by the uh, Ron Perlman people, um, they made a whole series of uh, disastrous decisions, one of which was to, uh, they, they felt they weren't getting enough love from the current distributors, uh, and they decided to buy their own regional distributor and go exclusive with it and expect it within a couple of months to go not only national but international as distribution. And uh, the people running that distribution company were just not capable of doing that. And uh, so a lot of these comic book stores, 
that were running on thin margins, they they relied on Marvel sales. That was their bread and butter, and they were having difficulty buying Marvel's product from Marvel's own distributor, <laughs> and that didn't help them when the market finally started uh, going in a downturn. That did not help you know, these people at all, and um, eventually that distributor went under, and Marvel had to join everybody else with the last uh, man standing, and that was Diamond. Hmm. Yeah, distribution has always been an issue, and then there's also the big speculator crash that happened in the 90s that also killed off a lot of the stores that had gone in to make a quick dollar, and they were left high and dry along with a lot of the other long-term stores. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, uh, I don't know, it, it's, there's, it seemed like there was a perfect storm uh, of negative things that were happening in the, uh, you know, mid-90s. Mid uh, you had not only uh, the first real downturn in sales at the comics business in North America had seen in a long time, uh, you had increasing competition for the attention and the money of the market from video games. And um, you had the disappearance of the newsstand market, so recruiting new readership was next to impossible. And, uh, you know, Marvel's bonehead moves like buying their own distributor and screwing that up. Uh, all these kind of things are happening simultaneously. They're just... Uh, you know, make the whole market go down the toilet. My take on the whole thing, anyway. I'm sure there's, there's plenty of other opinions out there. It, it's interesting, because it, it was definitely a perfect storm of, like, multiple factors, like you said, along with, like, just the shifting of the markets, increases in prices, and generations that were growing up without experiencing comics in the same way yeah um i think uh you know the today the the production standards on comics is very high um and the comics that i grew up with and the comics i edited initially uh the production values uh, the, the quality of the paper the quality of the printing and so on were uh, much lower than they are today and therefore that um, affected the price they were able to be much cheaper um, today the market that is there for comics expects them to have high production standards uh, which is nice except that helps keep the price very high mm -hmm. uh, at the same time even if you had an audience that would accept the lower production and manufacturing standards, uh, it wouldn't really help the retailers much because they would be selling a lower priced item and therefore making less money on each unit. Uh, so it's a, it's a bizarre problem that no one's really figured out how to resolve. Along with the issues of it being a direct ordering market, so you're requiring customers to do the job of knowing what books are going to be coming out, knowing where to go to order them, knowing how to order them, or you need stores that do their jobs very well, but even then it's very thin margins and it's not something that most of the companies are addressing and so a lot of the time it falls onto the creators to build their own audiences or they have to rely on big events which for the most part have seemingly had diminishing returns. Yeah, and it's almost impossible these days to launch a, uh, a brand new title because of the current conditions in the direct market when there was simultaneously a direct market and a newsstand market. Um, it would take you nine months or so to get after a book went on sale to get the final results from the newsstand. Um, and uh, it was just the way the system was set up. It took forever to get the final sales results after a book went on sale, whereas in the direct market, you know, you got them right away or close to it. And uh, 
so if you launched a new book uh, and it just did okay in the direct market, but it wasn't fabulous, uh, normally you'd wait until that first couple of rounds of uh, sales came in from the newsstand market because sometimes some titles appealed more to the newsstand audience than the direct audience. You might find out that you actually had a, a hit on your hand without uh, uh, before you canceled it. Uh, but with the direct-only market, the retailers uh, have to make these orders and they have to make them months in advance and they just figure that they're going to slash each succeeding issue of a new title because they expect sales to fall after you know whatever excitement is generated by the first issue. So by the time the fourth or fifth issue is being solicited, uh, sales are often so low that the book has to be canceled before, you know, the reaction to the market to the first issue or two has even, you know, been addressed. Mm -hmm. It's uh, it's not a very good system right now. It It isn't, especially for people who don't like buying single issues and would rather wait for the trades. And then if the trade sales aren't immediately high enough, or if digital sales aren't high enough and they aren't even sharing digital sales numbers for the most part, it's a yeah, bad... Yeah, when I, when I first started editing in 1983, Marvel would routinely, unless there was a good reason not to, Marvel would routinely cancel books that sold less than 100,000 copies. <laughs> Can you believe that? The idea was that even though they weren't losing money, they figured that if they took those money and creative resources and did something new, they might do something better. Get, you know, put something out there that would sell better. Uh, nowadays, if, you know, a mainstream title sells 25, 30,000 copies, you know, they're practically doing somersaults for joy down the hallway at the, at the publishers. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, uh, it's a very bizarre situation. And then there's sort of the issue with overstuffing the racks where it, it seemed like Marvel and DC have been trying to push out everyone from the racks by putting out as many books as they can, but instead they're cannibalizing sales for a lot of their books or they're pushing people away from the big titles or they're uh, like pushing people onto image or more creator-owned works. I'm sorry, you're, you're breaking up oh. a lot on my end. Hopefully I'm not breaking oh, up uh, any nope. other way. But. Um, it seems like Marvel and DC have been overstuffing the racks a lot recently where they're trying to push one another out of uh, business by making people choose. But the problem is they are, it feels like a lot of them are more likely to either stop reading the books or um, move over to image. That's a that's a um, you know an idea that's been around since uh, I guess the late '80s uh, that one company or the other or both are you know oversaturating the market to try and dominate it or or that you know by doing so they're even cannibalizing their own sales or whatever and uh, I don't know if that's true or not there may be some truth to it but. Uh, you know, I sat in a lot of editorial and sales and marketing meetings. Uh, I never heard one person once say, we're going to flood the racks to try and uh, dominate. Uh, it was all a matter of, you know, we know what's selling. Uh, and if uh, we think that there's more, you know, demand for certain niches or certain characters or genres or whatever, you know, we'll keep fulfilling that need until, uh, uh, you know, the market tells us otherwise, that they uh, are no longer interested in that genre or character or that uh, they've got enough of it now and they don't need any more or whatever. Uh, but, you know, maybe these days they do in the upper echelons of the uh, executive areas, they, they think along those lines. but. Uh, when I was on staff, I never heard any strategy like that going on. Okay. Um, well, is there anything else you'd like to mention about the uh, new universe or any final thoughts on that? Um, uh, just that I, I actually kind of wish the original concept 
<laughs> which was a series of new titles that didn't have to be connected as long as they were independent of the Marvel Universe. I think if, if that had, uh, maybe there is an alternate universe somewhere where that <laughs> idea went forward, and it'd been interesting to see uh, what kind of uh, titles came out of that and whether they were successful in the market or not. Well, there, um, oh, hadn't there been CrossGen, which was somewhat similar? CrossGen? Yeah. Um, I, weren't a lot of those interconnected, or no? Oh, uh, yeah, they were interconnected, but not necessarily to the Marvel Universe. Well, yeah, well, CrossGen was a totally different company, but uh, uh, I think some of their titles were in separate universes from the others, but I think a lot of them existed in the same universe. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's just, uh, I guess the... The only other thing I can say about the new universe is that, you know, after Shooter was, was fired by Marvel's management, um, their, the new universe titles um, continued on for a little while, uh, but a lot of people that were working on them were people that and it had initially been alienated by Shooter. Uh, and they came in and started uh, doing a lot of things with the characters and the titles and so on that um, I think they were the things that they knew Shooter would never have approved or whatever. And uh, I'm not sure that's a great motivation for creating memorable work. I agree with that. And uh, I probably just pissed off a lot of folks, sorry. Uh, but uh, that's just my opinion. No, I I, I think it's valid. Uh, there's sometimes a lot of inside baseball, and if it goes negative, it rarely works out well for either mm -hmm. side. Yeah. Um, one of the, the people who put a lot of time and effort into the new universe was uh, Mark Grunewald. And uh, he uh, he created DP7. Was very proud of that. I know. And uh, he had to put up uh, with a lot of um, difficulties dealing with the uh, shooter on that book. And uh, uh, unfortunately, uh, he can't talk to him. He passed away uh, 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, but. Uh, he uh, he really poured his heart and soul into uh, DP7, and uh, it was kind of sad to see that book not last uh, as long as he would have liked, I know. Um, somebody else you might want to see if you can talk to, see if he's willing to, is, uh, is uh, another editor who was up there at the time, Bob Budiansky, who I think edited uh, Cyforce for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, Howard Mackey who was due to take over editing most of the line I'm not sure how much work he actually did on it before the books got cancelled and then uh, I don't know where Mike Higgins is these days but I think he worked a lot on those titles uh, what was the second person's name? sorry Mike Higgins uh. I think he was the editor on a lot of those uh early issues on a lot of the New Universe titles. His assistant at the time was Mike Rockwitz, uh, who um, might be able to give you some insights. Okay. Yeah. Thank you very much for taking the time. And uh, you're the first person I've got and the only person who's actually confirmed a time. I have a feeling that I'll need to call... Uh, I emailed Jim Shooter initially. He responded and gave me his phone number and hasn't responded to other emails since. I figure I need to give that a call instead of trying further email communication. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think he does a lot of conventions these days. Actually, he has been uh, doing for a while conventions that were kind of celebrating uh, the original Secret Wars miniseries. Mm -hmm. uh, so he might be on the road a lot. Yeah. It, it has been weird recently, like in the past 
three or three years, I think it's been seeing a re a return of a lot of the or at least some of the concepts from the new universe into Marvel's main line. Uh, I'm afraid I haven't seen seen them. I haven't been paying attention. Uh, I did know I don't know a handful of years ago they did uh, what was it New Universal. Yeah, with uh, Warren Ellis on that. Oh, yeah. Um, so now, what, what, they have Starbrand, right? Uh, they launched a Starbrand and Nightmask series. And uh, Starbrand is in the main... Uh, it's not even the 616 universe anymore. I think it's uh, Earth Prime now. Hmm. So. Oh. Uh, yeah, I... Yeah. I don't know if um, I haven't read any of those. Are they are the the new stories any good or? I have not had time for it either. Um, there's some fifty plus books that Marvel puts out, and I've mostly been reading books with creators who I'm really into, or uh, resources are going to uh, Image a lot, or some of the other companies that are out there. Mm-hmm. But, uh, right. yeah, I, I think that's one of the important things now, learning to recognize creators who do really good work as opposed to characters that you like. Because you can have a character that you love who gets horribly decimated by a bad writer, but a good writer can make anything interesting. Mm -hmm. Well, almost anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting, even though I haven't read them or whatever, to see, you know, characters that, uh, you know, existed back when I was editing that, uh, you know, were kind of dismissed at the time and how they've gone on to, you know, be suddenly be fan saves or whatever. I, I edited the original Rocket Raccoon miniseries and got laughed at by a lot of the other editors when, when we did it. And, uh, you know, who would have thought what would happen with that character? Mm -hmm. Uh and uh you know squirrel girls now is a big thing yeah yeah <laughs> uh, you know who would have thought that would happen you, you just never know there's people uh requesting a new power pack series now uh yeah. that would be great especially if uh you know they get the right creators on there and to me the right creators will always be louis simonson and gene brigman or john bogdanov um, i had the pleasure of being the original editor on that title Mm -hmm. And it was such a joy to work on that. Yeah, it's a book that I've learned about in passing. There's been a growing movement of people looking back at a lot of classic comics and uh, in podcast form or in other formats. And the balance of like light and dark and bright and also just very intense in Power Pack has seemed very interesting. From what I've heard, I haven't had the time to read it myself yet. Yeah. Well, another thing, too, that uh, we were doing back then uh, that I, I don't know enough attention is being paid to today is uh, uh, Louise Simonson, we, we called her Wheezy. She, uh, she's like a, a great craftsman as well as just having a lot of great ideas for stories and characters. And just about every issue of Power Pack that she wrote, when you pick it up, uh, within the flow of the story, you quickly know who each of these four characters are, what their personalities are like, uh, and what they need to do and why. Mm -hmm. And uh, she establishes the long and short-term status quo very well on the run in the story. She didn't have to rely on, you know, tons of exposition or leave the reader baffled because they didn't want to put in exposition and they didn't have uh, the craft to weave it into the flow of the story. And um, so, you know, I, as an editor, um, she was a joy to work with because I very rarely had to ask her to change anything because she turned in such well-crafted work that I would basically read the plots when they came in smile because I had a great time reading it 
and uh, assign it to the artist, uh, Gene Brigman, initially and later on other people, including John Bogdanoff, and um, marvel at the work that they turned in. Um, and uh, I think my biggest contribution to Power Pack, uh, if I remember correctly, maybe Louise remembers this differently, but uh, the original proposal had a different name for the book, and I, I believe I'm the one that came up with uh, the title Power Pack. Um, but uh, that was a long time ago, so my memory might be faulty at this point. Well, thank you again for your time and sharing some of your experiences. I'm still roughing out how I'm going to construct all of this together, but you've definitely given me some very fantastic material and I appreciate your time yeah it's my pleasure let me know uh, when you finally get this pulled together and, uh, and air it I will be more than happy to do that you also gave me a lot of good things to uh, consider I'm working with a new company here in Columbus that is launching has launched five new comic titles and they're launching another two or three this year so Good luck. I appreciate it. It is, it is. But we've got hardworking people and good ideas, so that's always a helpful thing, if nothing else. Good. Um, yeah, thank you again for your time, and like I said, I will let you know when this has gone up. All right, great. I look forward to it. Thank you. Have a wonderful evening. You too. Bye-bye. Bye.